Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. With you this week, we have Gil Santelis, the CEO of NJFX. And I'd love to uh, welcome you to the program, Gil. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is this is going to be a great great combo. Generally, um, the last I want to say seventeen folks that I've I've had on the podcast are folks that I know relatively well. Um, but Gil, you and I, even though we have about one hundred and twenty shared contacts on LinkedIn, we we haven't actually talked yet. So uh, I'm excited to to pick your brain on a variety of topics here today. Sure, my pleasure. Always always happy to be helpful. So generally what I do um, is kind of dig into people's background, but just as some context, uh, you have, you have, you know, you are really an industry veteran and have seen uh, a lot of different aspects of the telecommunications, the cable, uh, the data center aspect. But before I get too deep, um, I'd love for you to just do a brief overview of kind of your, your background over the last 20, 25 years in the, in the industry. So I started my career back in the 90s with MCI, um, selling long distance to New York City, and, um, and, and, and got invited to be part of a joint venture in Mexico City that became a, a, group, with, called, a group called Banamex and an entity called Amantel. And I got my first sense of international and doing international business while commuting to Mexico City. Um, back in those days, selling T1s and E1s was considered big data. 1.5 megabits across the border. Um, fast forward, I, I got involved with joint ventures, including one with a company called Telergy um, back in the late 90s. Um, became a general manager for a joint venture between Telergy the, and a company called GPU Telecom. And there was a creative idea back then in terms of running fiber cable uh, in the Northeast along utility poles in the power space. And as I was a general manager for that business, I found myself watching uh, the internet bust. It was a boom and a bust. And um, 2001, Telegy went Chapter 7. GPU Telecom decided that telecom was a bad word and stuck back in the electric business. And um, I became an entrepreneur. Uh, I started a company called Four Connections. Um, and the mission was let's put up lots of dark fiber 
cables across the state of New Jersey and found ourselves competing with companies that were in bankruptcy. MCI was in bankruptcy, AboveNet was in bankruptcy, and we ran amok. We wound up selling fiber to hospitals, schools, financial organizations, and, and became one of the largest dark fiber entities in the state of New Jersey. Um, we were selling dark fiber to these real traders quick. that didn't even... Yo, real, real quick on that. So given the, the landscape back in 2001, how, are you, how did you fund that venture? Did you raise money when you know, things were crashing all around us? I seeded the capital myself personally. And then it was basically friends and family for the first million dollars. And, um, and then I bootstrapped it. We really started putting up cable on a project-by-project basis and tried to pick good locations. And um, some folks don't know this, but one of the locations that we got lucky with was the, the NASDAQ data center in Carteret was close to where we had assets. And we took, a, we took a run at that building and popped it and wound up being a pretty good investment on our end first ones to pull a cable into that NASDAQ data center, and we collected lots of customers. So a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, a little bit of good speculation on our part, um, but we used our capital wisely to be able to pick the right buildings, and then it just blossoms from there. So you, you were with Four Connections, and then I see you've, you've got a couple different things that you've done since then. So sure. what, so what happened with that company? Yep. 2008, sold to Cablevision Light Bath, um, and I, for all intents and purposes, I retired at that point in 2008, and, um, you know, took some time with my family, uh, bought a beach house, uh, bought a bigger house in the town I live in, got involved with uh, some philanthropy with hospital boards and school boards, um, but I also took um, a stint as the CEO of a company called 24-7 uh, that was based in Baltimore. And uh, George Rich had just inherited a company through uh, a deal, and he needed some help, so I helped him right-side that company, got involved with some private equity groups. And one of the things I realized as I started going through that process, call it 2010, 11, 12, was that the valuations were skyrocketing again. And as an investor, to get involved with a company was going to be expensive and became highly speculative. So I decided to get back in the business as opposed to just being an investor and watching from the sidelines. I decided to create NJFX and create a, a business where it was real estate-based and something that I enjoyed doing, which was helping customers socialize in a facility. So that's how NJFX got started. It was really out of my second time at, at the business, doing it from a different perspective this time. I used to own four connections. I used to help dark fiber companies figure out the best locations to go. And what I decided to do this time was to pick a location that I thought was the best in the U.S. to interconnect networks, um, networks that were global, networks that came across the ocean, and work with the friends that I had for the last 30 years that owned fiber networks across the U.S., all the different fiber providers um, the ILAC, all the large carriers in the U.S. I knew well. I knew the CEOs, and uh, I started to socialize them with the international folks that I've now become good friends with also. When was the first experience that you started to have with the, the, landing, the fiber landing stations? I got to know the, the, the senior team over at Tata Communications. And Tata had bought um, 
the company from Tyco went bankruptcy back again in 2001. And as part of that purchase, they had a cable landing station in Wall, New Jersey, um, that had a cable called TGN 1 and 2 that went across the Atlantic and then had other cables interconnecting from the U.K. that went globally. They basically had a cable system going around the, the globe, take an entire lap. But the one that I focused on was the cable landing station in Wall, and uh, I approached the team and I said, when you, when you purchased Tyco in bankruptcy, you picked up 10 acres and there is a, a, a lot in the back that was never developed, that was meant to do something. It was meant to be a building that we could use and interconnect U.S. networks to the two cables you have in the cable landing station. Um, the reason why we, we made it clear that it wouldn't happen in the cable landing station is because that building was meant for a single purpose, just to land a cable, and it's really a D.C. building, not A.C., um, you look at what a good co-location facility can do, you need lots of power, usually AC power. That building was closer to below a megawatt, where we designed and built eventually a 10-megawatt building next door, purpose-built, that was meant for 1,100 cabinet equivalents so that you could have the masses come in and interconnect. So, so that's how I got involved with Tata, and that's how I started the joint venture with them. And, and one of the things that we agreed to early on was in order to do right by the industry, this building had to be carrier neutral. And to be carrier neutral meant that the position Tata would have would be as a minority partner. Um, and they're less than a 15% owner in NJFX today, um, which makes sense because it really should be a fair market, um, even playing field for the carriers to work with someone that has only their best interest in mind, and that's helping them meet each other and interconnect. Digging into the, going back a little bit, um, for those who are listening that haven't heard of uh, Tata, could you just briefly explain who they are and what they do? Tata Communications, um, it's part of the Tata conglomerate that owns Tata Steel, Tata Motors. Tata Motors has Range Rover, um, amongst other brands in the auto industry. They're a large group that's really a family business, but publicly traded. And um, and they make strategic investments globally in various businesses. And they chose to get in the communications industry by buying Tyco. They bought Tyco, and they also bought um, a group out of Canada. The name escapes me for the moment because of the letter T. Um, but they used that purchase of that Canadian company to take the Tyco assets and and really, you know, kickstart the internet by having all the IP addresses that this company in Canada had start becoming part of the global infrastructure that they owned physically with subsea cables um, around the world. It wasn't two cows, was it? One in Canada is not two cows. It begins with the letter T. It's based in Montreal. Um, as we speak, I'm going to take a quick look and look this up because now it's killing me. Yeah. Um, so related was was that. So what what got you interested in the the fiber landing stations? Because not many people even know they exist. <laughs> even people who have been working in the industry for a very long time, people are familiar with internet exchanges and they're familiar with you know, the big data warehouses, um, and some are even familiar with the the old CO. 
shows um, and, and the switching stations, but not very many people have either been in or understand the the purpose for these landing stations. Um, were you working, you know, in one of your prior roles, did you come across them? So as we had four connections, one of the things we did for our customers was provide clarity. We, 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 we leased them dark fiber between point A and point Z and provided them clarity on how their network worked. So if you were a large bank, if you were a university, if you were a hospital, and you needed to know that you had network diversity, the only way to know for sure was to lease dark fiber, ask for what's called a KMZ file, which is basically a Google Earth image of how the network traverses between the two locations. And if someone gave you that and leased you the fiber, when you accept the fiber, you accepted it, you would actually put a device on it to tell you how many feet between A and B. Once you had that footage, you now knew that was your route. And now you had clarity on how your two buildings were interconnected. And back in 2002, that was somewhat new. It was being done for efficiencies back then. It was being done for unlimited bandwidth between two sites. But soon thereafter, it became for, I need to know how my network works. I can't afford to have a network failure when um, I have a critical business and the common carrier, whether it was Verizon or AT&T, made a mistake and, and somehow my network met at some point along the way in between, something failed, and I'm completely out. So being in that dark fiber business, I had an obligation to provide that kind of clarity. I had to tell the customer, here's how it works between A and B. The one part that we couldn't do was internationally because you can't lease a pair of fibers across the ocean unless you have a spare 50 to 60 to $100 million to invest. So what we wanted to do was provide access to the cable landing stations. And this is for the largest financials that we had in the U.S. that are all looking for this clarity on how do I go across the Atlantic Ocean. And the only way to do it was to get to a cable landing station and have the operators say, yes, I'm putting you on this cable. And the idea about providing clarity globally then came to me. It made sense. These customers need to know how they're crossing. They need to know what points of failure exist between their critical infrastructure sites and uh, in the U.S. and the ones in Europe or South America. And the idea came up of why not let U.S. carriers connect their customers and themselves at a cable landing station. I take it somewhere in that process is when you and our, our mutual friend Hunter Newby cross paths. We did. Uh, Hunter Hunter invented the industry of carrier neutrality. Uh, Hunter invented the Mimi Room. And he and I had always talked about, you know, the ultimate is to get close to a cable landing station. Figure somewhere between the cable landing station and the major city because all the cables were all coming to major metros to set up shop and then disperse from that city across the rest of the region. So in our case, New York City is the major pop that all these international cables were coming to after landing in New Jersey or landing in Long Island. But what they didn't realize they were doing was creating the biggest point of failure we had in the world within two buildings in lower Manhattan. And although it became convenient to hand off your traffic there, it became a very painful reality that that could be a problem. So, you know, Hunter's a partner in NJFX, and he and I talked about the idea of can we get close to a cable landing station? I just surprised him when I actually bought the land 22 feet away from the cable landing. 
station. Just to help people understand, you know, some more context around these landing stations, how many are there, you know, in the, let's just say the, the coastal United States on the West Coast and the East Coast? How many of these landing stations are there where the cables are coming in from overseas? So I can't give an exact amount for the entire East Coast, but I can tell you it's between 17 and 22. There's that many. Um, I thought that there were fewer. So there's that many where cables are actually coming in from from uh, basically the ocean into into the continental states. There are because you've got Long Island, you've got New Jersey, Virginia, and you've got Florida. And um, I'm sorry, that number includes the West Coast. We've got more on the East Coast than we have on the West Coast. On the West Coast, we've got Hillsboroughs become a cluster of lots of cables landing there, too. And there's That's one a on new the one, too, right? Well, there's new cables arriving, but they're kind of coming to the same location. Um, so, so total for the U.S. is between 17 and 22. And, and, and the number, so in telegeography, you're going to see 17, 18, but there's others that aren't publicly listed because of national security or for for, for just protecting those assets, that they're not public. Gotcha. Um, there are locations that are important. You know, the environmentals that you need is you want to have a location that's uh, pretty good above sea level. You don't want to find yourself at 10 feet above sea level, 12 feet above sea level, because you have uh, close coastal proximity. Um, you'd like to have a reliable power source, which makes it another challenge to be close to the coast with reliable power source, because electric utilities consider the coastline the edge of their networks, so they don't invest in infrastructure that close to the edge. Um, and then you need to have a good marine environment. You know, you don't want to have an area where naval ships are going by and could scrape and, and, and really affect that cable. So it's not easy to pick where these cables are going to land. It's interesting. I remember um, my first introduction to to these types of buildings and facilities and the whole concept of subsea cables uh, came when I attended a PTC event in, in Waikiki, the Pacific Telecommunications Conference, um, which I'm sure you've probably been to a couple times. Um, but I was, meet, I was talking to some mixer, a woman who was an engineer that worked for one of the, uh, the companies that deploys and manages the, the fiber um, in the water. And she was explaining to me just the the physics around where and where they can even drop the fiber cables, the you know big fat cables uh, in the ground, and how they can't go over large crevasses uh, underwater because of some something to do with the um, I, I can't even remember something to do with the I don't even remember what it was, but she she was just digging into like all the intricacies of where you could and could not drop these cables and what it took. Uh, how much it cost, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billion plus dollars to even build net new uh, A to Z connections between two continents. Oh, it's and fairly then, complicated. I mean, it's simple, but if you start taking the pieces and putting it together, it gets complicated because you've got to plan on where you're going to drop it. And you have to assume that at some point in the future, you've got to go back to it and repair it. So if you, if you drop it in a crevasse somewhere and it drops another six miles, how are you going to pull that back to the surface if you need to one day to repair it? Because um, the cut might not be in that crevasse. It might be a mile away, but you literally think of it as slack on the bottom of the ocean. If it's, if it's coming up two miles, 
you have to have enough slack on the bottom of the ocean to pull it up two miles and start planning for that new splice point along the way. So you're planning on a project that is a 25-year project, but you're planning for many scenarios that that you know need you to resurface that cable at some point in the future. And your decision on where you place it affects that decision in the future. So yeah, it's a lot of planning involved. And then you've got shipping lanes that really need to know where those cables are to protect it. Um, it it's an industry where um, people don't know how it really works, and that's okay, but they need to be aware of those assets, and, and people that do know about them have to make sure they protect them, and they deliver them in a way that in the future they can pull them back up and preserve them and keep them operating. Yeah. Um, think of it this way. It used to be voice, right? 20 years ago, there was no internet. It was voice traffic. And then we got some data along the way, and then now the world depends on these cables operating. Um, you know, there's applications that are being hosted in other countries that we just have no idea that it just works for me. Um, and those cables are critical for that communication to go back and forth, whether it's the development of the application, support of the application. Um, we depend on those things to work every minute of the day. And, and, the, and the subsea cables are how we interconnect continents. Um, and, and it's an important part of the economy today. And the, the intricacies involved with these things um, are, are, it's even more complex than terrestrial cable and fiber that's being laid when you have to deal with issues with, uh, as you mentioned, you know, trying to bring the cable up when there's a, a cut or there's an issue and trying to determine where along the path that issue is, uh, the repeaters that are needed uh, within um, the cable. And then the other piece I actually remembered um, had to do with latency, right? So latency and, and the speed of light kind of becomes a little bit warped when you're going underwater over these large crevasses, um, as I remember her explaining it to me, so that they have to pick routes that bypass, you know, those, those large caverns in the ocean. Um, it's just, it, it was so fascinating to me. It, it made me... It was one of the first times in this industry where I realized there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down <laughs> and, and the no amount of knowledge you can gain is almost endless. Because um, even in that space alone, there's just constant innovation taking place and going on. You know, latency is a, it's a topic that everyone's now talking about. Um, latency, latency is important to everyone. You just don't realize it. So whether you're playing a game and you want to have... Um, the person that you're playing the game with be able to react to you. You want the audience to be able to react to the gamers. Um, whether it's financial markets that need to know the condition of situation in a, another city, another marketplace, and react to their decision going back across, whether it's NASDAQ to the London Exchange or the Bovespa, uh, latency matters. Um, latency is how we interact with each other. And the subsea systems just made the world a lot smaller. But you need to visually see the person and hear the person, or you need to see the transaction at the same time to create a fair marketplace. So latency affects everything we do on the Internet. And the biggest runs we have are across oceans. You know, if you run a cable between the U.S. and Brazil, it's 100 milliseconds. If you're running between uh, New York and L.A., you're running at about 15 milliseconds. So the ocean cables really do have a disproportionate amount of latency because of the 
physical size of what they have. And, 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 and then you start looking about traders. Traders really care about milliseconds. You know, one millisecond could be an eternity for them. And if they can make that cable just a little shorter by the route they pick or avoiding those deep parts of the ocean, um, not just for the maintenance, but also for the latency, absolutely it's an advantage to the, to the operator to have a better cable and a better latency. So who owns these, you know, who put up the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to, to deploy all this infrastructure? So, so originally it was the, the Arbox, the, all the regional phone operating companies, and uh, the international carriers were forming consortiums, um, and they invested to put these networks up, and they all jointly own them. Um, it, it's only been in the last five to ten years that the OTTs have started becoming the major back, backbone investors to these cable systems. And now, today, they're the only ones that are really putting that kind of money in. You said OTT. So, what, what is OTT an acronym sure, for? Sure, sure. The OTTs are over-the-top uh, over uh, content companies. Uh, they're the ones that have really found value in monetizing global network capacity. Um, you know, the, the carriers have been servicing their customers. And the OTTs, the over-the-top providers, have created applications that can monetize what the carriers invented, the, the Internet and the capacity it provides. The, the, over the, the, the OTTs now have applications that, um, that are important to work anywhere, anytime. Um, when you're traveling, you expect your Facebook page to load with friends, whether you're taking a picture in Paris or you're in Hawaii. You expect it to work for yourself, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's a YouTube video you're pulling down. Um, you expect things to work wherever you are the same way that when you're at home. That only happens by having a huge investment on the part of these OTTs that make their applications ubiquitous across the globe. Has the cost per you know megabit, though, in that world, people really probably don't buy megabits. They're probably buying gigs, if not larger size links across the ocean. Has that cost been dropping just as quickly as it has for just basic DIA services here in the States, direct internet access here in the States? Great question. Um, so Sean, the, 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 every year, here's the, here's the two inversions. The cost drop, but the usage skyrockets. The, the pressure then becomes on the platform operators who you're buying the gear from to make up the difference. So the carriers have to discount 25% a year, but their take rate goes up 40% a year. So then they push harder on the optical transmission operators and providers to get them faster equipment, cheaper. And that's how we're all staying afloat. That's, that's one of the key technological advancements, at least that I've seen taking place. It's not so much that... Uh, there's a need to deploy more fiber optic cables, even though that's definitely the case. Um, but the gear that sits on both ends, that's both sending and receiving the the light, right, through the fiber optics is changing, making it so that you can actually push and receive a much larger volume of data over the same strand of fiber. Is that is that accurate? That's correct. So if you think about the some of the original cables that are coming close to the end of life, that you know, call it TAT-14 that leaves out of Manasquan, New Jersey. Um, you know, those cables are 25, 26 years old. It, 
there's going to be a day where it just costs too much to keep that cable going. You know, it's not worth the maintenance because the capacity on it is one fiftieth of what they can do now with a cable, one hundredth of what they can do today with a cable. So why pay that OPEX and maintenance for a cable that just can't perform any longer? So the new cables being deployed now are much more cost-effective on a per-terabit basis um, to allow you to start retiring some of these older cables. The next big cut you have, you decide, I'm not going to repair it. I'm just going to let the cable go. And you can scrap it if you'd like, but there's really no value because the new cable is so much better. So companies like Aquacom made an investment in uh, AE Connect that uh, is now coming to our building uh, via Cross Lake Fiber, who's putting in a cable from Long Island to New Jersey, bypassing New York and avoiding that major point of failure called Lower Manhattan. Um, they they are now taking advantage of the latest and greatest technology where they prefer to sell you 100 gig versus selling you a 10 gig. And they won't even entertain a gig. It's just too small. It's not worth it. So is the technology such that, I would imagine it would have to be, you know, if there is an issue uh, with the cable, they can pinpoint where in the path that problem is so they can go straight at the at the source of the problem versus having to bring up the entire, you know, cable between the two uh, repeaters? Right. So, so they can pinpoint with a pretty exact, I mean, within a mile or two where their problem is and have to deploy ships. And so they have to go out there and deal with it. So they're going to go out, you know, 230 miles off the coast and or 1,000 miles off the coast and, and look for where this problem could be. And um, as they do that, they, you know, it's an expensive proposition. You've got men and ships deployed, fuel, and you're, you're on the hunt for finding your cable and then surfacing it if needed or dropping a scarab down. A scarab is a device you can drop and it can sit on a cable. And it actually has the ability to repair a cable in the bottom of the ocean. If that's possible, it's a lot cheaper than having to resurface that cable. Um, or they can do an entire section throw, and that's just eliminate a section of the cable by resurfacing on two different ends and just giving up on pinpointing the problem and just replace an entire two-mile section of the cable. That can be done also. There's many techniques they have to allow them to just save the time and money to just get it back up and running. but it's not going to happen in a couple of days. It could be weeks at a time when a cut does happen. What's interesting, uh, it's come up recently, is I have a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Miller, who runs a company, M2 Optics, here in Raleigh, uh, that specializes in um, fiber, building customized fiber spools for companies to test latency. Um, but they also have a product that they sell that allows those who have their own fiber assets uh, to pinpoint exactly where on the route or how f- how far down the route a specific issue may be occurring, um, so that you can test for you know what who, who's at fault, um, but also you know not have to spend days and as you're saying a week or, or or more trying to pinpoint exactly where that issue is. I would think that that technology would be deployed with those subsea cables because it would it would save a ton of money than having to spend that much time trying to figure out where the problem is. So for a terrestrial cable, it's pretty straightforward. You described it correctly. It's basically they have footages on the cable. So the cable every five feet has a number on it, 10 feet. And it tells you how many feet to the next 
spot with you know footages on it. When a when a U.S. carrier deploys a cable, they 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 take those numbers they call sequentials and they put it into their database and they know manhole to manhole, splice case to splice case, where their um, their cases are. And when they shoot an OTDR, optical transmission, uh, it's a device that tells you where the break is, basically. You shoot light, and it says 3,400 feet from here, you got a break. They go now to their paper records, electronic records, and say, okay, where is 3,400 feet from here? Oh, it's on the corner of uh, Route 9 and, and 72. And at that point, they deploy trucks, but they're looking. I mean, the same thing in the ocean. They're looking. They're, it's not usually obvious unless you go out there and you see a, a fire truck and say, okay, that's my problem. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pole fire or a truck took out an intersection and a cable went down. But it's, it's something that could be a squirrel hit, believe it or not. So you get a U.S. network with a squirrel hit, it's going to be a long night for that crew trying to figure out where along the route that cable's compromised. Um, a a worst-case scenario could be on really cold days, um, U.S. networks sit in splice cases where they interconnect cables at a splice point. And on a really cold day, if water gets in that splice case, the fibers get water that, that will drip into the case and it'll freeze and the fiber will just pop. So you drive by, you looking at it and saying, there's a problem somewhere here. I don't see anything wrong. I'm, I'm, I, there could be water in that case. I'm going to bring the case down. I got to call the police to come do traffic detail. I'm going to open up the case in an environment in a truck, in a splice case truck. I'm going to clean everything that's in there. You're talking about a good day worth of work. And that's just troubleshooting. So, so even terrestrial networks, even though you might have a good idea where your problem is, a lot of troubleshooting that has to happen before you make a decision. And I think this is it, guys. And you can close out your ticket in their case. Or same thing with the ocean. There's a problem 10 miles off the coast. You're on the hunt for what's out here. Oh. Now, did, a, did, a, did a ship go by and drag an anchor and, and, and tear up that cable? And then how do you find that spot looking in the ocean across a pretty wide, pretty wide area? There's some, some fun stories about, you know, think scenarios that have popped up as a result of, you know, that, that infrastructure sitting on the bottom of the ocean. Um, one of the stories that I, I came across not too long ago with the terrestrial issue was there was a big satellite um, wireless dish that was having latency issues and they couldn't figure out what the heck was wrong with it. And they kept looking at it and it looked fine, but it had a cover over the dish and it wasn't until someone got close to it and they noticed that there was a, a hole in uh, the cover over the dish and a squirrel had actually been storing all of its nuts inside of the, the area between the cover on the dish and the actual dish itself. And when they pried the cover off, there were like a million uh, acorns that fell out of it. <laughs> And once that was taken, you know, once that was cleaned out, they put a new cover on it that didn't have a hole on it, and the problem was solved. Um, and so I, I'm betting. Have you come across or heard of any stories like that with the subsea cables? You know, Sean, that's a good one. I, you know, on the terrestrial side, I've heard of these crazy incidents where squirrel hits affect your cable, or you know, again, uh, the water is the, the most common one that you always hear about. Um, you know, in terms of terrestrial cables, even simple things like 
you lose power in a regeneration site, or someone takes the equipment that regenerates that signal terrestrially between a major metro, and they take the plugs and they put them both on the A side, where they really should have put them on the A and the B side, because the equipment can work on whether the A or the B works, equipment will still work. It reflects back and forth. But the technician ended up making a mistake and putting them both on the A. The A was taken down for sort of maintenance. And then they have a two-day outage, and they can't figure out why they're having an outage. All the lights are on, but the equipment was plugged into the wrong switches. Those things I've heard of. In terms of subsea, you know, the most common ones I hear about is just ship anchors. There's just leisure boats dropping anchor, you know, two or three miles off the coast and not realizing that they're moving their ship now or moving their boats and they're dragging across a subsea cable that's only, you know, it's, it's, it's about six inches thick um, at that point in the ocean. It's not very thick at all and you scrape it long enough and eventually you dig it up. Um, it's not a root. It's actually a subsea cable. Crazy. And it's not like you can put, um, you know, buoys up kind of make people aware that that's that that's there you kind of want to avoid that you don't you don't want to mark them out well but i I think i think the government does a good job of you know reviewing those areas and they have and the companies do pay maintenance to have uh, planes uh constantly circulating over areas that are known as problematic with you know with fishing that are going to do any kind of fishing uh trips or fishing kind of events where they're scraping the bottom looking for for crabs or lobster and and they're and they're just you know scraping the bottom of the ocean pulling up anything that's there so so we try to keep an eye on those things in industry but it's impossible it's the atlantic ocean it's vast so that that brings up an interesting question about the relationship between the government uh and the private sector in managing these specific locations um, I remember when I first got started in the industry, I started researching a little bit about them and noticed that there were a number of these cable landing stations in some of the second world, third third world countries um, and continents that were uh, just nowhere near as protected as they are here in the United States. Uh, I'm praying that over the last decade that <laughs> that they've people have taken them a little bit more seriously. And that they're not as exposed as as they were, but um, you know what what is that relationship between the government and the private sector, and how are they kind of working together uh, to make sure that those assets are protected? Well, I think our country does a great job in in making those critical assets uh, known as critical infrastructure. I'm very supportive, and they have programs that allow operators of those landing stations to be able to identify themselves and have resources in times of a widespread catastrophic event like a Hurricane Sandy or the hurricanes that we had in Florida. Um, but if you start looking outside the U.S., and this is, a, this is an interesting one, so Puerto Rico is technically in the U.S., but when the hurricane came through Puerto Rico, the landing station there ran on generator for two months. Um, and if you have a landing station or a data center, your most vulnerable time frame is when you're running on generator. It's not meant to run the facility for more than a couple of days at a time. Generators need to have uh, oil uh, for maintenance for the, for the engine as well as fuel. 
They have to have changed filters. And once you go beyond a week, you're putting a fair amount of stress on the design. And you go to two weeks, you're really testing procedures. And if you think about a wide-scale disaster like Puerto Rico, you have employees that have limited access. They can't get to the site to do that kind of work. So, so Puerto Rico came, it, that cable landing station was on and off for, for days at a time because of lack of resources. That disaster was so wide-scale, they just couldn't get to all the critical infrastructure in time to help everyone out. I would think that just getting diesel there would probably be nearly impossible. I think the FEMA folks did get them the diesel they needed, but it was always just in time. They show up with the trucks and you sort of start fueling up again and you hope for the best. And oh. you're right, those cables, even though they're not in the U.S., but although Puerto Rico is the U.S., you know, they have U.S. traffic going through them. They, they go from Puerto Rico and hop across to whether it's the British Virgin Islands or the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, when they go on to South America, it's a global infrastructure that, that, that coexists between U.S. and other countries. Right. Yeah, one of, one of the most fascinating things that, um, you know, related to that that I learned when I was doing some work down in Florida uh, was how much of South America's traffic actually clears through Miami. So you might be on your cell phone in Brazil in one of the cities in Sao Paulo um, and not realize that you know, the local websites and the local content is actually hosted out of Miami uh, or hosted somewhere, somewhere in, in South Florida. And your request is actually going, going to the States and then going back to you in, in Brazil. It was just pretty fascinating to me how much traffic actually clears from South America through the United States. Is that, is that still the case or are you, do you follow any, any of that? And does, does NJFX actually come into play with that? Think of it this way. That, so the taxes in Brazil are 100% of your purchase price. So if you buy a router for $70,000, the tax is another $70,000 for that router. Um, so to, to have equipment in Brazil is not inexpensive. If you look at the amount of data center space they have in the country of Brazil, it's less than they have in the state of New Jersey. It's got 100% more data sales tax? 100% sales tax in Brazil. And we have, tw- and we have more data center space than they have in New in, in New Jersey. Than they have in Brazil. Holy smokes! So if you are an operator in Brazil, and and their power quality is, you know, lights flicker, you know, on a regular basis. Once a week, your lights are flickering. You're off for a few minutes. So so in terms of what we're used to in the U.S. Um, compared to Brazil and other countries. And it's a world apart. So it's much easier to go up and down from Brazil than it might be just to operate in Brazil. Now, they are getting better. You've got entities like Equinix that has set up three, four buildings down there. Their Brazilian stock exchange has put in a state-of-the-art um, data center for their financial markets. Um, they are making those investments as we speak, but it, that's only in the last year to two where you start to see those kind of investments come online. Um, and Miami is just like New York City, but they're doing for South, South America, where New York City does it for Europe. So the tables don't land in Miami. They don't land in Napa, the Americas. They land in Boca. They land further up in Jacksonville. It's the same mistake they made in New York. They took all that capacity from those cable landing stations, and they brought them south to Miami, interconnected them there, and then came back up north from Miami past the landing stations to reach the rest of the U.S. 
So it's, it's something that's happening. Do you happened. know what three is as to why they did that? Was it because they were looking for a secure, you know, above as high above sea level as possible location for it all to terminate versus doing it closer to the landing station itself? It's a great question because you would say, so does it make any sense to do what you just did? Back in the day when they did this, everyone was an individual cable landing operator. They were all owned by either a consortium where one of the members took ownership of the building and ran the building for the rest of the members, or it was one brave soul who decided to go build a cable landing station and and and, and then manage it and manage a cable, like a GlobeNet, for example, or a cable and wireless. And if you have a building where you're the owner-operator, it's hard to attract other carriers to come work with you because carriers ultimately compete. And carriers don't want to be, um, I hate to say this, held hostage by a competitor. So they'd rather go meet in a neutral place. The only neutral place that existed in Florida back 15 years ago happened to be at the Napa of the Americas in Miami. And um, that facility doesn't sit more than 12 feet above sea level. Verizon bought it. And now Equinix owns it, and they've done a good job trying to raise things off the ground floor, um, work with what you have. But once those networks start interconnecting, it's very hard to get them to move. So New York City with 60 Hudson Street, 32 of the Americas, it's going to take us time to fix the problem we created on having the global networks move. The only benefit we have now is that we have new cables crossing the ocean, new cables being announced. And they've figured out they're not going to New York City with all that capacity. It's a mistake. They're going to the cable landing stations, and from there they're going to go to the cities they need to get to. New York will get some of the traffic, but they're not going to get all of it. And the same with Miami. Someone needs to create an NJFX in Florida, because right now it doesn't exist. Why why aren't you doing it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm exhausted. Um, You know, We start off with just doing a meet-me room with Tata, them putting up a tier three co-location facility, and now we're doing a 58-acre campus where in September we'll be leasing out lots and blocks for independent operators to have their own four walls to run facilities next to the cables coming in off the United States. You've probably seen similar things. I've been through almost every major internet exchange now in the U.S. over the last five years, but one of the most hands-down impressive was that NAP of the Americas building and the meet me room there, just watching, you're just seeing the thousands of strands of fiber coming out of the floor there and the, you know, like three foot diameter tube um, or multiple three foot diameter tubes uh, in the floor. I wish I could have taken a picture of it, <laughs> but for obvious reasons, they didn't allow me to do it. It was just, I felt like you know, truly of all the facilities I've seen, I felt like I was in the matrix uh, at that moment, looking, looking at that space. So one of the things I'd love to get into, and I, I greatly appreciate your, you know, the brief background that you shared, um, you know, your entrepreneurial uh, mindset and your bootstrapping the, the business um, early on. Uh, how did you, how did you get into the industry? Like what were you taking technology, technology classes in at the university? Did you grow up with technology around you? Like how, how did you kind of get interested in, in and around the the internet space? Sure. So the internet wasn't around when I got involved in the industry. It was back in, when I graduated college, I graduated from Cornell in 1988. And um, I went to the hospitality hotel school at Cornell. And after I graduated, um, 
friend of mine was watching the MCI stock and noticing how great it was doing and said, Gil, you know, it's a fascinating company. They're, they're, they're breaking down barriers to meet with those guys and see if there's something that you can do with them. And, um, you know, I went to a few interviews and they ended up liking me and thought I'd be a good fit for their international sales group. And when I got started, I was selling international minutes for $3 a minute to call between U.S. and Argentina. Um, because I speak Spanish, you know, I, they, they asked me to kind of help them with the vertical market for Latin America. So I worked in the New York City branch back then. I had the Bank of Mexico, and I had, uh, uh, I had uh, the Argentinian Airlines, and I had the uh, Brazilian Airlines, and, and I just got fascinated with helping international organizations solve network problems. And um, getting involved with that Mexico, Mexico City joint venture really sparked in terms of, you know, what's possible when you start interconnecting networks and how, whether it's banking or telemedicine that even existed back then in terms of how do I send information on x-rays back and forth or didn't have MRIs. It was just really big files. Um, it just it felt like being connected was going to be important. And um, and that's how I got involved. I, it, you know, technology. My definition is innovation. You know, technology. All it really means is a better way of doing something. And and you know, innovating our our communications. I think is one of the best forms of technology. To that end, what is or what are some of the biggest innovations that you've seen in your space over the last decade or so? that you think were just complete game changers? Well, I mean, I give Hunter Newby credit again, you know, coming up with a carrier, what's carrier neutral? If you'd ask somebody that, you know, in 1999, 2000, it didn't exist. And everyone kind of worked in a silo and everyone competed with each other. And the real estate model of working with the carriers, I think has been the biggest innovation because it's allowed for, for collaboration. People actually now talk to each other and they figure out how to work together to solve global problems. And the term we use in the industry called co-opetition, which means today you're my competitor, and tomorrow you know, I'm going to work with you to solve a problem because I'm Telecom Italia, and you're Deutsche Telekom, and we can't do this on our own. Let's, let's do a deal and figure this thing out. Um, so I think carrier neutrality has been one of the biggest innovations in our industry. Um, I think about, you know... Carrier hotels have traditionally been cheap office space that you find a place to interconnect. And what we're doing at NJFX in terms of doing a tier three site, which means that the site is run with concurrent maintainable systems to deal with multiple failures and still be able to work and have interconnections and a carrier neutral facility work there, I think is a pretty unique step for our industry. And, and once again, I think having a cable landing station open to networks and not be proprietary to one cable system, and not bring into just one city and make sure that city works for you, I think is going to be a game changer for our industry. I think the networks are going to be much more reliable. You're going to see much more cooperation in terms of interconnecting subsea networks to create Europe, to South America, to Africa. We've got carriers like Angola Networks that's, that's doing a complete circle around the Atlantic Ocean, Africa, Europe. North America, South America. And when you have connectivity, it allows for folks to bring things to market. 
Why, why do we have to have all our call centers in the U.S. or in India? Why can't they be in Peru? Why can't they be in Ecuador with less of a time change? We're really creating a global platform for humans to interact. That's a great point, um, and one that uh, both myself and, and the other partners here at Open Spectrum have come across in the last couple of years is a lot of people would say, well, because processing speeds are, are growing, uh, it's going to reduce the need for capacity in data centers. Um, but when, in fact, what we're seeing is the exact opposite is because processing is becoming so much uh, faster, it's creating new opportunities, uh, new applications, new use cases. Um, you can actually do much more rich content uh, that's you know going to be traversing between cities uh, so that you can have 3D, live 3D streaming going on in HD quality. Um, and that's, you know, that innovation uh, is what is continually driving the demand for new, uh, new space and power and also more and more cable uh, going all over the place. And I, I don't think that the the public truly understands the sheer volume of data that is being created day over day and how that volume of data is growing uh, every day um, and why this infrastructure is absolutely critical to us basically living in this, you know, the new digital, brave new digital world that we live in today and the, the way of life that we've come to become accustomed to is absolutely dependent on all of this infrastructure. And those cable landing stations are absolutely, you know, they're a piece of that puzzle, right? But they're an absolutely critical piece to that puzzle. Um, just yesterday, in fact, I was, I was at a InfraGuard meeting here in North Carolina uh, presenting uh, on that very topic, you know, speaking to how critical these facilities are and how they connect uh, and are reliant upon so many other critical infrastructure silos like water, um, the power grid, um, the financial services industries, and there's about a half a dozen others that, that all relate to the data center space. You know, transportation, as we were talking about getting diesel to one of these locations. If the roadways are down, then the data centers aren't going to have, and, and the power is down, then the, we're not going to have access to diesel, which is going to power the generators, which is going to keep those facilities up and running. Um, but the criticality of all this infrastructure and the nuance to it is just, it's part of why I, I love this space and I truly do love data centers because it's fascinating and it's critical um, and it's constantly evolving and changing. I mean, the Internet of Things means that everything is connected. And if it's, if, it's, if it's not having a connection, it's not going to work. And You know, your car might not work one day without an Internet connection. and That day might not be that far away. Um, household appliances aren't going to work. TV sets aren't going to work. Things don't work without your internet connection. We're all interconnected. And, you know, your data center used to be your, you know, your IBM, you know, big clunky computer on your desktop, you know, 20 years ago that ended up being a closet in every office building that became a room in every office building that got outsourced to a better place to put it in a shared data center environment. And now we're facing this day that's even obsolete. Put it in the cloud, which means I'm going to give it to somebody else and they're going to do a good job for me, more cost-effective to spin up this than I can do on my own in applications. But if that data sits somewhere where it's not close to me, then it's all about the network. I need to be connected. I need to have multiple ways to get to my data. My data needs to be in several places so that there's no 
single place where that data will some have a problem, and I can't get yesterday's version, the day before's version, out of corruption somewhere along the way. So it's all about the network as the data center gets continued to get streamlined and gets better managed by less than more. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, so given the experience that you've had and the trends and the trend lines that you've seen over the last two decades, what do you think the next major innovation is that's either occurring right now or that's right right on the horizon? Um, I think I think a big question everyone's asking themselves is will the growth of data support the shared data center market against the fact that people are migrating to the cloud. So you've got lots of data center companies that offer a shared environment uh, for the enterprise. And the data there is growing at a rate. Will that rate exceed the adoption rate of the cloud? And that's going to be an important equation over the next 10 years. Because the cloud folks can tell you they can do a better job, more cost-effective than anyone can managing their own data, even though they might have an incredible price to be in a data center in a shared environment. Much less go build your own data center, which I think everyone kind of agrees is is the most expensive way to do something and pretty inefficient. Um, So the adoption rate of the cloud versus the continued growth of data and therefore the need for more data center space by the enterprise market. Um, There's two segments in the enterprise space that are significant, that the holdouts at the moment, and that's the hospitals and healthcare because of their HIPAA compliance and their need to really keep tight hold of what's important to them, and then our financial industry. And um, I've heard statistics to the effect of 10 to 20% of all IT spend in the U.S. related to financials. Um, if they start adopting the cloud for their applications, and that'll be some form of cloud to determine, I'm not sure how they define cloud. It might be a private cloud in their case, not just a public cloud. But as they start adopting it, there will be, be a switch at some point where the shared data center guys are going to be looking at each other with a lot of empty space, and you're going to only see the cloud guys now managing everyone's data, but then the network becomes super critical. So I can't get to that to those clouds, then I can't get to my data. That's interesting. Um, well, let me let me throw a couple other random questions at you. When you got started in in the industry, so early think think back early days. What was some some advice that you wish you had that would have made your life a little bit easier as as you kind of grew in your professional career? You know, I figured it out along the way, but it's a small industry. Um, No one ever leaves. Um, Reputation is everything. Um, Do right by your customer. Do right by your fellow employees. and, and, And do right by everyone you interact with because it's an industry of trust, right? Everyone has to work together. And there's days where you might not like each other, but you're going to have to work together again in the future, and you should think long-term, not short-term. And as we travel around the globe going to trade shows, you know, I make it a point to always shake everyone's hand and say hello and see how they're doing because it's all about relationships. It's about getting things done. And our industry is always progressing and working through and solving issues and collaborating. Um, 
you know, when I first started my career, I worked in a silo called MCI, and our arch enemy was AT&T and Sprint. And it was only later on that I realized that there's hundreds of MCI, Sprints, and ATTs out there, and we have to all work together and, and create things together. So, it, you know, it took me a little bit later in, in, in my maturing to realize that I was part of an industry where I would work with my competitors one day in the future. You mentioned that earlier with that co-opetition piece, and it's so it's so true. And that's one of the mantras that I've had throughout my entire career, which I think is one of the key reasons why I've I've been successful doing what I do is always understanding that you know though my solution might be awesome, it's not the only one, and I can't try to cram clients into boxes that aren't the right fit for them. So to the ability that I can befriend the people who are also in the industry and help move uh, solutions around, um, you know, it's, it's adding value in every conversation. And that's in part why I ended up leaving uh, working for uh, one of the owner operators in the space QTS uh, back in 2011 and, and put my shingle out is because I had been doing that for so long and developed so many relationships in contacts that I realized that I could, you know, I could do that full time <laughs> for a living and, and still make money um, and not be beholden to any one facility or multiple facilities that were owned by only one operator. But um, that co-opetition piece, I think, is so key. What what was you know related to that question is what is some advice that you were given um, or that you think really transformed how you were kind of working and playing in the space? Well, in terms of advice, I mean, it's kind of similar to what I shared before. Just, you know, be straight, be honest. Um, you know, just just be straightforward with folks. You know, it, it, the, the, the truth hurts sometimes, but it's it's the one thing you can always remember. So just try and be honest and, and, and be fair with people. Um, you know, I think that always comes back. Um, there aren't shortcuts. There's just, you know, there's, there's one way to get things done, and it's the right way. So let's let's talk about NJFX a little bit. Um, so who who are your target clients these days? Who are your existing clients these days? Who who are you going after? Who would be an ideal fit for for someone uh, to give you a ring? So so we inherited a few customers when we opened our doors because our deal with Tata was anyone that was an existing customer inside the table landing station could work with the Meet Me Room we created inside the Tata building. And we inherited nine customers that first day. And we've been adding carriers since then, and they're carriers that bring their ecosystems to the table. It's carriers such as Light Tower and Altice and Comcast and uh, Sinesis and Cross River, and they're all different. They're all different in what they can bring to NJFX's community in terms of their reach across the U.S., um, customers like Telecom Italia and Sparkle that have a massive network in the Middle East, Latin America, and now is cable going to Brazil. Um, so the customers that we like the best are the ones that want to interact with our community and bring some specialty to the equation to support our ecosystem. Um, we've said no to some profitable deals that just want a lot of space and power because they were adding nothing to the ecosystem. All they were going to do is take down power and space and kind of be silos. Our perfect, you know, tenants in the building are ones that interact with the other communities. 
other tenants that we have and help towards the community. Uh, so, you know, our, our current focus right now is the Asian market. Um, the Asian market traverses the Atlantic Ocean, and we're making it a point to make sure they realize that the Atlantic Ocean has a gateway, and it's called NJFX, and there's three cables crossing the ocean out of uh, our facility. Um, out of the ones going to Europe, we've got close to a third and the, and, the, and the largest cable now going across to Europe. So we want to host them and their traffic and then let them collaborate with our community on parts of the world that my community is not familiar with and make sure we socialize them. So I want my phone to ring from unique networks that add towards my community. So that brings up an interesting question that I forgot to ask earlier. Do you guys operate the equivalent of some sort of peering exchange for those large transcontinental network providers? We don't, and it's because we would rather have the exchanges be best of breed. And if it's one, two, or three of them, we're open to any one of those setting up shop and being able to run their business. The minute I start doing an exchange, I've created, uh, I made myself a competitor of others trying to create that within our facility. Has anyone created that in your facility yet? We haven't signed yet, but we've got one that's pretty popular that we're hoping to able to announce in the first quarter. That would seem like a no-brainer um, for someone to to jump on top of to to set up. But interesting. So. One other question I have for you is what what is a common misconception that you think people have either about the the facility that you operate and or the just the industry at large? The biggest one is we go to trade shows and we'll sit with sophisticated global network providers and we'll go through maps and they'll tell us, "No, my cable, my cable lands in New York." I'm like, "Sir, your cable lands in New Jersey." It goes to New York after it's landed in New Jersey. And with a straight face, an executive at a company will swear to me his cable lands in New York City in Manhattan. And I have to explain to him there isn't any cable landing in Manhattan. And if it did, you'd be embarrassed. If you open up a manhole in New York City, it's a rat's nest. The amount of infrastructure New York City has that just lays on top of each other, hundreds and hundreds of cables throughout Manhattan that some, there's no, people have no idea what those cables do anymore, but they're afraid of touching them. So they just continue to pile into these manholes across uh, New York City and the Empire City subway system managed by Verizon. You don't want to have a subsea cable go anywhere near Manhattan. It's a disaster. Um, so the biggest misconception is that New York City is the landing for the United States when it comes to cables coming in from Europe and Latin America. There Do you think no that cables. that's – is that a result of the, the sales reps that work for some of these companies? Telling customers false information, or what, what do you think is causing that? So, so pre-1984, AT&T was the headquarters, or AT&T was the incumbent for the entire U.S. It was, it was one company. AT&T did local and long distance. And yes, at one point, AT&T had all the subsea cables all coming into 32 Avenue Americas in Lower Manhattan. So everyone assumed that New York was their destination. The same way when you travel to Newark Airport, it says you're going to New York, or you're going to New Jersey when you land in Newark Airport. Newark is in New Jersey, but it's just considered a New York airport. Um, New Jersey has always been just considered kind of part of New York City, but when it comes to the physicality of where the cables physically land, it's not in New York City. It's a great city. We love to visit, 
but my network doesn't have to go through there. It can visit the city, but it doesn't have to live, reside, and go through New York City. Because I hate to say it, it's inevitable for New York City to have continued issues where, where the cables land is really the place where you should pick up your capacity, not take it to a distant location, then traverse out of that location that's, that's pretty crowded in Manhattan. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. Well, Gil, this was extremely informative on my end, uh, and I will definitely be giving you a shout at some point here in the near future to pick your brain more on a variety of topics. Uh, but is there any other concluding thoughts or words you want to share with, with our audience that, that's going to be listening in on this? Um, thank you for the time today, too, and then letting me share my insight. But what I share with your audience is that you know, the world is getting much smaller. Um, There's huge investments being made in terms of subsea cables, which will make the world even smaller. And and envision that, you know, your neighbors in France and in Belgium are going to FaceTime you, are going to watch the same events that you watch, that the way we grew up with a TV and 24 stations or 500 stations will be in thousands of stations and everyone will be their own broadcaster. And that's all coming to you because of the investment being made by we call them OTTs, the over-the-top providers. They're investing incredible amounts of capital to make the world a smaller place. And um, I'm excited for our future, and I'm excited to come back on your show at some point and share additional updates in terms of investments being made. But, um, but it's a good time for telecommunications. It's a good time for global infrastructure, and it's a great time for the Internet to continue to revolutionize how we, how we interact. Amen. I appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time as well. And my last question for you, Gil, is do you love data centers? I do love data centers. I love data centers because we couldn't do what we do without them. There's got to be a safe place for our data to exist, and it's got to be protected and managed. And um, and for that reason, we're all doing what we do today because we have good data centers in this world. Well, thank you for uh, for being who you are, Gil, the work that you do. Uh, and for just being uh, a man of integrity and, and honesty, uh, who's hustling, doing good things in this industry, man. I, I appreciate, appreciate it all and look forward to connecting with you again sometime soon. Great. My pleasure, Sean. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm-hmm.